People sometimes ask me, Jeff, what goes into producing your own weekly podcast? Mm, actually, no one ever asked me that. Like, never. But it's not always as smooth as one might think. There are always time issues and Zoom issues, scheduling issues, me screwing up this, me screwing up that. And there's also dog issues. <coughs> the dog you just heard belongs to Bill Colson, former Sports Illustrated Managing Editor and today's excellent guest. And the dog really busted his ass sneaking onto the show. Which is funny, but not that unusual. Many dogs have made appearances on Two Riders Sling and Yang, but Bill's was uniquely persistent. I tried cutting him out as much as possible, but the guy kept barking, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. So give the pooch his due and pardon his interrupting spirit. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Bill Colson, the former managing editor of Sports Illustrated and one of my favorite people in journalism. This is episode number 276. Let's sing some Yang. Dad, your podcast sucks and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Bill Colson, thank you for joining me. I have not spoken to you in, in many moons. And I was thinking, you just said to me, you, you, uh, before I started recording, you said, uh, so wait, so how does this work? You know, blah, 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 blah. And I kind of break it down. And I was thinking like, you and I came together, met in a world that was so vastly different media wise, where you were the managing editor of a print magazine, where all the emphasis was put on the print magazine, a hundred percent emphasis print magazine. And here we sit in 2022 uh, you've been retired for a couple of decades. I no longer work for the magazine. Are you confused by the modern media landscape as much as I am? Yeah, I'm pretty confused. I'm sort of a Luddite, I got to admit. But um, I also understand it here. Things change so much more quickly than they used to. But I would also say that we were totally uh, dedicated to the magazine until the last few years of my editorship when, when, the, when the web became started to become increasingly important. This will take you to tell you how far back I go. I remember in the 2000 Olympics for Sydney, writers were still looking to get paid extra to file for the web. <laughs> so the idea of a, of a writer having a full week or sometimes months to work on a story just flew out the window with this new media. The other thing has changed is, you know, besides the whole, most of the magazine world ending up uh, in the toilet, is that uh, the athletes don't need the magazine. The mag the mag it used to be the athletes needed a platform like Sports Illustrated or the New York Times or whatever you may be. Now they have all they all have their own platforms. So it, it, it's 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 changed entirely in that sense. This is going to be weird, but does it um does it at all make you sad? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think it's harder to come across the kind of writing we had in the mag. I mean, I really believe that Sports Illustrated is hated when it was, you know, for a few decades was the best written magazine in the, in America, except for maybe the New Yorker. And you don't have, I don't know, maybe they're out there, but I don't see the Gary Smith uh, out there, those kind of long form platform anymore. And so that's gone. You know, I don't want to sound like a, like, like a troglodyte here. I, anyway, that's the, I, under, I get, the, I, I don't participate in it, but I get it. And I understand why it's, 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 it's so uh, vital to the way we media is conducted today. All right, so I'm fascinated by a few things. It's 1995 and you're an assistant managing editor at Sports Illustrated. And Mark Mulvoy, the managing editor, 
has announced that he is he will be retiring. And the company decides they're going to have what they call a bake off, which is we're going to have a competition for who's going to take over. And they have two candidates, you and Daniel Okrant. And you both get three months to basically run the magazine and show what you can do. And you have from May to July of 1995 to run Sports Illustrated and show that you can be the managing editor of Sports Illustrated. Was it a dream of yours to become the managing editor of Sports Illustrated? Was this kind of thrust upon you? Um, were you excited about this? Were you terrified about this? Uh, probably a little bit of all of above. The way it happened is that Mark had, you know, rightly or wrongly decided you know, that I should, that he thought that I would be the person to take over. And then what happens is that his boss, the editor, we got a new editor-in-chief for Time Incorporated, or Time Magazine's all, Norman Perlstein. She comes in and goes, wait a second, totally has every right to do this. I'm not just going to take the word of Mark Mulvey, who I've never met, that this is the guy. So he takes a little time and says, all right, let's have a, let's see what somebody else can do. So that was a little terrifying, I guess, as you would. And no, I didn't dream of becoming editor of Sports Illustrated until I got sort of became an assistant manager. And then it became, oh, this may be, this might happen. So that's when it became a re, more of a reality, a possibility, if you will. But uh, it was when Norm came in and said, I want to take a fresh look at everything and not just take the word of somebody else. I've never been. And he ended up taking me, which is the same person market not in market picked me. But um, it was, yeah, it was a little nervous. I also say this, it was a big deal. It was a bake-off and it was written about in a lot of national publications. But the fact is, Businesses of all sizes do what you call, we call bake-off all the time. They, they, you know, big corporations, smaller businesses say, okay, we're going to let, we have two or three people here we think might be good for the candidate for the top job. Let's see how they do running the business for two months or five months, or let's let them run a whole division by themselves. So I, I don't think what happened was very unusual. It was just that the media latched onto it. During the bake-off, so you, again, you have these three months. Mm -hmm. And you do these two covers, cover stories that become, uh, you know, very well-known Sports Illustrated magazine covers and magazine covers that garnered a lot of attention. On uh, May 29th, 1995, you had Dennis Rodman uh, <laughs> on the cover in a leather outfit with a parrot. And it was this really shocking. It was the, the headline was Rare Bird, Dennis Rodman of the San Antonio Spurs. It's him in, in leather with his hair dyed red, a parrot on his arm. And it becomes this highly talked about cover, this controversial cover. And then on June 12th, 1995, you do a cover and it just says why the University of Miami should drop football. And you are from South Florida. You have Miami ties. That cover becomes a sort of bombshell of a cover. Alex Wolf writes a story. When you were doing these, how much of it was, I just really want to have a great cover. And how much of it was, I really need to impress the people I'm trying to impress. So I need to break out everything I have. Oh, I really didn't think about impressing anybody or particularly Norm Perlstein, who was the one who was going to make the decision when, when, those, when those stories were published. In both cases, you mentioned the cover. Uh, this is one of the joys about Sports Illustrated is you never know, or you're often pleasantly surprised on Sunday morning when you get the story, what the cover image possibilities are and what the story is going to, how the story is going to read. And you know, Dennis Rodman was a huge phenomenon at that time. And it was you know, an obvious story for us to do. So we did the story. But I had no idea what John McDonough was going to come back with for a cover. I mean, a talent, he, he figured that out. We didn't, we didn't stage direct that cover. The editors didn't. Steve Fine, the photo editor didn't. It was, wow, when we saw those slides on Sunday morning. Then. And the same with 
the Miami cover, it was much different. I mean, it, was a, it wasn't a photograph. It was just a, a big print of my Miami to drop football headline. But what made it, it was when Alex Swift turned this powerful piece in that was a letter addressed directed to the president of the University of Miami. And it's sort of, it's sort of wow, the cover kind of just came organically out of that story. So there wasn't, neither, in neither case was the cover thought of in advance. It was just, it all, it all came together on, on Sunday. I think the it's cover. hard for people now to understand the magnitude of the SI cover. How much thought went into it? How big of a deal was the cover back then? It was huge. I mean, the SI cover. And one of the things I was very reluctant to get into is splitting covers for, or having different covers rather than one national cover. Yeah. Uh, because I thought that cheapened the brand a little bit. And for a long time, we didn't even have cover lines mainly just to advertise other other uh, stories and uh, stories other than the cover story in the magazine. We started doing that when I was the editor, but um, I, it was it was hard to give up you know, the idea that just one SI cover once once one, only one a week. Wait, so winning the Bake Off? Do you remember how you found out and what that sort of meant to you? Yeah, I mean, Norm took me out to dinner and uh, told me that I was going to get the job, and that was you know I was thrilled. And uh, because I was waiting, I had had my three months and then Dan, who's a terrific guy and a terrific journalist, as you know, went on to have all kinds of uh, successes and as an author, et cetera, after that. Um, uh, but he had another, he had the three months after I went first. So then he had three months. And then after that, I guess at some point Norm told me, and I was, yeah, that was exciting. No question. Because it had been dragged out. Because I said, as I said, Mark said, oh, you're going to get the job. But then we, he gets another new boss. And, and then, so it, went, it, it was dragged out for a long time. So I was, we were left hanging there for, for quite a number of months. I was talking to my wife about this. You would have no memory of this. But I was at a, um, when I was a young writer at the magazine, they used to have obviously these lavish SI holiday parties. And I brought my then girlfriend, now wife, to a party. And you talked to her about she was a social worker, social work for about 25 minutes uninterrupted. And at the end, she was like, who is that? And I was like, that's a freaking editor of the magazine. And there was another time, I think it was shortly after you were done and you you were driving past newer show where I lived and you came over and just kicked my ass at ping pong. And there would be times when you were managing editor where you would just stop by the bullpen where the reporters were and you'd be like, I think this comma's out of place. Is this comma out of place? I was aware of the image of Mark Movoy, which is this larger than life, omnipotent kind of figure. And I always found you incredibly hands-on. You didn't really view yourself as quote unquote, the editor, that you were just a guy who happened to have this position. Am I misstating that? Well, that's, very, that's very nice of you to say. And, and, and let's go back for a second to what you were asking before about the changing world media. And it was starting to change very quickly toward the end of my, my tenure there, as I said, we were dealing with writers for the first time we were asked to write more than once a week while they were covering the Olympics. And maybe that was a weakness of mine that I was totally devoted to the, the weekly magazine. But remember we started, we had a partnership with CNN, which is also owned by Time Warner. And we did SITV, CNN SI. Yeah. And we had, uh, and then we had the web. Maybe I was too, too devoted to the, to the weekly magazine in each page and not, not looking globally enough to where else this is all going. On the other hand, a lot of people, Smarter people than I am about this kind of media didn't figure it out either. And uh, we know where the Time Eat magazines are, are today. Can I admit, here's one you may not remember. All right, the famous John Rocker story. Yeah. Right? That yeah. you wrote. Do you remember, Jeff? Um, Norm Pearlstone, my boss, who we've talked about already, was a great boss to me. He would let me do, you know, he, he, he was terrific. But one, he had one rule, and that rule was, I don't want any surprises. So just let me know if there's something coming. 
And he often usually called in, you know, on Monday to got anything interesting or anything I should know about. And I would tell him. Now, do you, Jeff, do you remember the sto- Do you remember the week of the John Rocker story? What was on the cover? That of week? course. Of course I do, because myself and Steve Canella were given the awful task of compiling the 50 greatest athletes from every state list. So I had this idea. I wanted to do the 50 greatest athletes from every state. Right. Yeah. And I thought it was kind of cool. And then I get the production people involved. And we're not going to do that. This, 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 I thought, was a justifiable reason for, for multiple covers. It's the same cover, but we wanted the list different for every state. So Mississippi would have its own list and, you know, Wyoming would have its own list, right? So two things about that. One, you and Steve Canola, I mean, you were a writer then, and you graciously volunteered to fact check that story. So I haven't forgotten that. I think you may be the only writer who, who said, okay, I'll go back to my fact checking days and help out with this. It was a huge, if you remember, it was a huge logistical undertaking, right? You'll agree with that. Awful. Right. Yeah. But, but going back to what Norm said, I, I said, so then, so I'm, I'm obsessed with this story, you know, and getting it right. And I'm talking to the people, the manufacturing people, the production people, how we got to get this all done and, you know, get each state to have its own cover with its own list. And, and then, so Norm calls, and then your story, your story, just there's another, there's another thing. I had no idea what you were going to, you know, write. I didn't have any idea this John Rocker story was going to show up on a Sunday morning. And so I forgot to tell Norm about the story, <laughs> your story. <laughs> and so I heard from Norm, you know, the next day or two days later when it came out, and people started asking, what is going on here? Oh uh, so I totally forgot about uh, telling my boss that you had turned this incredible story in. Wait, I, I'm going to tell you two things about that. So Canel and I were, we were, we had to, we had to find the list. We had basically had to make the list and we split it myself, Steve, and a little Mark Bechtel. We had to split the states. And one of the states I had was North Carolina. And during research, I read about a shortstop in North Carolina named Walter Teapot Fry. And his yeah. family was trying to get him into the North Carolina sports hall of fame. He was a minor league infielder. And I thought it'd be really funny if I put Walter Teapot Fry on this list and because of the list, he got into the North Carolina Hall of Fame. So <laughs> I, made, I made him number 50. He probably didn't deserve it. And then several months later, I'm reading archives of the North Carolina whatever paper. And it said, there's an article, North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame to reconsider Fry's candidacy after Sports Illustrated honor. And the other thing I remember about the Rocker experience is the decision was made. I shouldn't do any publicity. I did one radio hit. That was it. And then my hometown newspaper called and I said, ah, oh, I'll do it. That's fine. And I did it. And they ran, it turned out being a Gannett paper. And the story ended up running on the wire, the Gannett wire. And you called me into your office. It was the only time I ever actually saw you mad. And you were like, Jeff, we kind of had this deal that you weren't going to do any media. So just don't do any more media. And that was it. I actually felt a profound disappointment that I let you down. So 20 uh, something years later, I apologize. Two quick things. I'll talk about that. You, I'm sure you helped on that uh, 50 greatest in every state. Didn't we have, we had a hard time figuring out, we had it took us some discussion with, to find out where, it wasn't as simple as this person's from Pennsylvania, this person's from uh, Ohio. Was it where they were born? Where they, you know, if they were born there, but they moved when they were 12 years old, what state would they be from? You know, it, it was, other than, was Joe Namath Pennsylvania, was he Alabama or was he New York? Yeah. There was a long discussion about, and, and I don't think we had any, at least I don't remember any errors, but we did have some omissions. Oh, the big one was Evander Holyfield in Georgia. I've never forgotten that we somehow we did. And he was from Georgia, right? We left Evander Holyfield off the entire thing. Yeah. 
that wasn't so good. That was an error of omission. <laughs> Wait, so uh, here's one I've been wanting to ask you for years. 2001, I was living in New York. You were living in New York. The September 11th attacks happened. And I yeah. remember finding out we were going to have an issue that week. I was, I don't know if I was furious, but I thought that this, what, this is ridiculous. That this is a horrible decision. What does this have to do with sports? We should take the week off. And it, it wound up being one of my favorite issues in the history of the magazine. You obviously made the decision. We should do an issue uh, the week following 9-11. What do you remember about that decision? Well, I won't take credit into all the credit for making the decision. This went up the flagpole to, to Norm Perlstein and, and the, the other powers that be at Timey. We discussed it and we thought, and they asked me, what, what can you pull together? I mean, this is a prime example of the talent that was on that magazine. I mean, we didn't have any idea. That happened on a Tuesday. It was our day off. But Tuesday was our Saturday. And we, would, we didn't reassemble to begin the week until Thursday. But by that time, we had people in place in Washington, Scott Price in Washington and John McCallum going to Pennsylvania. And a, a collaborative effort of the writers and the editors coming up with stuff that would, be, that would be appropriate was just astounding to me. And it became obvious by Friday or Saturday that we had, we had an issue that we could be proud of. All right, I'm going to give you two, two controversial ones. There was an issue I have in front of me, May 4th, 1998, and the cover is Where's Daddy? And it's about pro athletes having kids out of wedlock. And literally on the cover, the son of Celtics guard, Greg Miners, kid's probably two years old, holding a basketball. Yeah. A lot of blowback over that one, um, that it was, it was unfair to this kid. Dad was, you know, a jackass, but this kid didn't do anything. And now he's going to have to live with this scarlet letter. Um, I don't know. Looking back, your thoughts on it. Would you, was it in hindsight? Was it wrong? Was it OK? Or- no, I think it was I think it was a good cover. And I did two are, you know, two good friends of both of ours. Grant Wall and John Wertheim spent a lot of time pulling that together. You're asking not the story, but the cover. Yeah. You yeah. might be right. You know, looking back today, maybe I would think, you know, maybe we don't want to have the kid on the cover. Uh, maybe we've been more appropriate to, uh, well, if we're doing today, we could have Herschel Walker, right? Yeah. <laughs> Herschel Walker's kid. Kids. <laughs> but, you know, I agree with you. If, looking back, I would give it certainly today in hindsight, I would I would give real thought with the way they want to have the, the child rather than the uh, rather than, than the, the father. Wait, and then the other one that I always remember and I have in front of me because I found it. I didn't write this story. I just remember it was <laughs> whatever happened to the white athlete. This ran in the in the waning days of 1997. I remember that getting a stirring a lot of emotion. Um what do you remember about that cover and that sort of story? That yeah, I don't remember that getting that much blowback. I mean, I don't think it broke any new ground. I mean, Scott Price spent a lot of time at it, and we, did, we, we went to a lot of trouble to, to find whatever the leading research was with scientists and, and physiologists. But um, I just don't remember. I mean, Jeff, you might remember better than I about that getting a lot of blowback right now. Maybe it would now. Uh, oh, definitely would now. Definitely, definitely would now. Right. But I don't I don't. That that when that one came and went pretty without too much fanfare in, in my mind, but maybe I'm memories playing. My memories uh, not what it used to be. When you're the editor of a magazine, and you're dealing with the Gary Smiths and the Rick Rileys and the Richard Hoffers and the Phil Taylors and the Jack McCallums, on and on and on, is there an approach to dealing with really high level writers? Is there is there a way you're supposed to be? Are you supposed to be hands off with some, hands on with others? Are you do you walk cautiously with some, less so with others? Is, is it one size fits all? No, I think it's, I don't think it's any different working with any other type of large group of employees. Um, there were so many good ones that, that I just found that most of them are so easy to work with. I don't, I don't remember having a problem with, you know, 
the writer's ego, if you will. I mean, Gary Smith is the most ego-lacking person I've ever met. I mean, he only wrote four pieces a year and pretty much, and we were just glad to have him come whenever, but Michael Farber on hockey or Tom Reducci on baseball or Jack McCallum on basketball or Peter King on football. These people were just wonderful to work with. I mean, Frank DeFord was wonderful to work with. I don't remember, I just don't have, remember having issues with people. You know, I had more issues with people who were not as talented and didn't get called to write as much and say, hey, I want to do this story. And you had to have difficult conversations sometimes about why that person wasn't writing this story or why they weren't being sent to the, you know, let's say you're doing college football, why they weren't being sent to the marquee A game, they were being sent to the B game. Uh, maybe those kind of a little bit, but the writers you're talking about, the, the headliners, they were, they were, they were a joy to work with. I always tell people, I remember when I got promoted to staff writer and you guys used to have the, uh, every December you would fly in all the writers and you would have like a state of sports illustrated. Right. And I remember my first time being in the meeting and you're sitting in this room and you're just looking around and you, I always say, I felt like uh, Leitner on the dream team. Like you don't feel like you really belong, but you're in the room. And it was just the most miraculous group of writers. I don't think you can replicate that. I don't well, there think was, that the collection of writing talent there was just unsurpassed in magazines. There was nothing like it. It felt like journalism royalty. Yeah, as I said at the beginning, a while ago, I think, I believe then, and I believe now it was the best written magazine in America with, with the exception of the New Yorker, probably. It was, I don't think it took great pride. I think it was the best written magazine that a lot of young maybe teenagers read. It's the best writing they would read. A lot of them would read uh, in in a week, and but I was aware of that then. What I what what I guess I takes after the collapse of magazines, particularly news magazines, is I appreciate it much more now than I did then. Even though I was aware of how good the, the talent pool was, but now you really say, "Wow, this is never going to be replicated, is it?" When it's gone, you know what I think was unique about it? It felt like a collective effort. Yes, you know what I mean. It felt collective. I always thought the editors of big weekly magazines get too much credit when things go right and too much blame when things go wrong. It's a collective effort. And, and uh, uh, yeah, editors, you know, three or four top editors and then the senior editors who don't get enough credit who ran the sports, individual sports, uh, were terrific, just seeding us ideas all the time. Think about it. Unlike Time Magazine, where you have the whole, we have a very small camp canvas. It's the sports world. Think of this, 80, I think 80, 90% of what we covered was scheduled. So that made it kind of easy. You knew where you were going to do. On the other hand, it was harder to, to get it, to do something new every week. That was, I thought, an interesting challenge. Sure, you're going to cover the things. And people expect you to cover these things. Uh, when Notre Dame's playing Miami or something in football, they expect you to be there. You just can't just do it because, oh, we did that last year. People are expected. But you also want to make it new and get something. You want to surprise readers. So I thought that was sort of the, both the, the easy part and the hard part uh, of, of editing a, a sports publication. ESPN, the magazine comes along in 1998. You know, they took a lot of people from SI and there was this threat. How worried were you about sort of a rival coming along? Oh, sure. I was worried. Oh, yeah. They came after a lot of people and they didn't get everybody and they got some people. And that was difficult for the first time. You're talking about that was probably the most difficult, not difficult, but yeah, from a personal standpoint, you had to make this. We had to make decisions about writers were approached, and then we had to decide. Again, I'm I'm in consultation also with my boss, Norman Pearlstein. But are we going to pay people more? Are we going to let them go? 
just like teams now do with, you know, free agency, I suppose. And for the first time, there was real competition for, for our talent. We were used to just being, you know, we were, done with, we were plucking people from the newspapers and, or where we wanted, but now we have tons of you could pay a lot of money. And so, yeah, that was, it was concerning. And we did lose a couple of people, but we also, I'm proud to say, we kept a lot of people. I think I felt increasingly when I was at SI that ESPN as a network as a whole was sort of the competition to SI, that SportsCenter was a competition, that just the rising, the personalities, the Rich Eisens and Stuart Scotts were kind of the competition, that TV, sports TV was a competition. Did you not feel that way? Oh, I, 100%. I was, yeah. You know, you could tell when somebody came in with an idea and they just watched SportsCenter last night. I mean, yes, they were defining the agenda in a lot of ways. It was the network. Well, let me ask you a question. If we were talking about the sports one, what, what does this say about sports today? Where, you know, I read the New York Times every day. They buy, the Times wants to boost subscriptions. So the Times buys athletic, the athletic, right? Yeah. And that gives them an immediate boost in subscriptions. But I don't know about my, I have a subscription at the time. I can't, I have to pay more to get it. If I want to read the athletics, I have to pay more for my sports coverage if I want to read that. So the New York Times has sort of basically given up, right, on covering local sports and local teams. They don't even do that anymore. I know, which so, is really depressing. Is this going on all over the country? I, I don't mean, know. The New York Times thing is very confusing. Like, um, I'm pretty good friends with Tyler Kepner, their baseball writer. Yeah. Not that long, I guess, long ago. Tyler was covering the Mets. Buster only was covering the Yankees. Mike Freeman yeah. was covering the Giants. Jared Eskenazi was covering the Jets. Selena Roberts was a columnist, on and on and on. And they had this, almost like SI, this mini all-star team of sports writers. And then one day they just said, yeah, we're kind of done with that. We're done with that. Exactly. It's very weird. I mean, could it happen? Could they say, oh, if you want to really learn about, I don't know, fashion and culture or food, they're going to go buy into something else and make you pay more for that just to get more. I don't know. They just got out of the business of covering during the playoffs and like the Rangers had pretty had a pretty deep run of the playoffs. You wouldn't find they didn't they didn't even staff these games, the playoffs. I know. It's just interesting. I don't know. I'm not criticizing it. I mean, I'm sure it's a sound business decision and maybe they, they know far better than I do what their readers want. And they're much, they're much, they're a global brand now, but it's interesting. They've just sort of thrown in the, thrown off the white flag about covering local sports in any sort of gritty way. I don't know if you go through this in your life. Like um, I explained to people what life was like at Sports Illustrated and they look at me like I have seven heads. I'll be like, yeah, they used to have this like five course meal served on Sundays because we were working late. And there used to be town cars that would take us home. There'd be a row of town cars outside the building to take us home. And if I needed to do for the inside baseball column, I wanted to do 400 words on Joe Randa of the Kansas City Royals. They would say, all right, fly to Kansas City on Thursday. Oh, we, I used to when I was a reporter uh, fact checking and you big break because you get to a little you do. Maybe you get to do a scouting report. I flew to Salt Lake City to do interview Danny Ainge when he was still playing at BYU for a scouting report. And then I went to Oregon State. I mean, for a scouting report, I don't know, 200 word scouting report. They would send you out. I always say when it came to good journalism, money was no issue. Right. Was that true? Pretty much. Yeah. Well, I'll say one thing. I love my 25 years of sports source and particularly the five and five years as editor, but the, the five and the six years, but the last year I was there and maybe a little more, a little less, it became less and less about great, worrying of great stories and great photography and more and more about headcount. 
things are starting to close in a little bit. We were worried about, they were, they were giving packages. We were telling, you know, we were trying to thin the ranks of, we didn't need all these, these writers. We didn't need to send so many people to the Olympics, et cetera, et cetera. So that was all starting um, in the last year. So I was in more and more meetings about that, about headcounts and cutting costs uh, in the last year. So that, and that just continued obviously exponentially for the year, for years to come. Did you just learn to dread those meetings? Yeah. You know, what's coming and you know, it just wasn't, you know, it just got to be, that's yeah. But that's part of the job. I mean, everybody's going through that. Yeah. Madden was based on time Inc. Right. Wasn't it? The, the, the whole lifestyle and everything. So like, yeah, it was great for in the eighties and nineties, but then reality hit in, in the early two thousands. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's back from four days at club med. So how you doing? I have to pee. What? Did you know at Club Med, they have all-you-can-drink Shirley Temples? So I had 10 on day one, 12 on day two, 11 on day three, and a world record of 23 Shirley Temples on day four. That sounds pretty extreme. Maybe, but being at the bar often allowed me to share a real bond with Kiki, the Club Med bartender. And I told him all about RoyalRetros.com, a place for the world's greatest throwback jerseys, t-shirts, and hats. I mean, I guess that's pretty cool. Ah, uh, uh, what? Does Royal Retros make blankets? I don't think so. Why? Because I just peed on yours. I never covered an Olympic Games at Sports Illustrated. Yeah. For people listening who wouldn't understand, what was the, how much did SI put into covering Olympics? Oh my gosh. I, I was in charge when I was an assistant manager. I was in charge, it was at 92, the Lillehammer Games. And this is the Winter Olympics, which is not even the, you know, but <laughs> I was there. I was in charge of that, and I don't. There must have been twenty some odd people. I mean, writers and photographers and reporters, and you know, somebody would run the office, and I was there for you know for three weeks. And you know, most of the the writers would come and would come when the day before it started, and were there till the end, through closing ceremonies. And then Jeff, you'll remember this. How about how about Atlanta in '96? And the first year I was editor, we not only uh, we not only covered the games, but we put out a daily. Oh, yeah. We put out a daily magazine and we'd never done that before. And it was just in the Atlanta area and it was a huge success. And Norman Perlstein even said, hey, I think we should put this up for a Pulitzer Prize because it was a daily. Uh, But and Craig Neff ran that whole thing, that whole operation with Mike Bevins. And it was a huge success. We had a daily magazine we put out. It was that's incredible. That's amazing. It was quite an effort. I used to own a Sports Illustrated Daily Olympic magazine T-shirt that I bought for $5 at a thrift store. I love that T-shirt. Oh, yeah. So people have forgotten about that. But I don't know. Maybe they're called, Maybe you can buy them on eBay or something. But that was, I thought that was quite a tour. And that was, that was exciting to be in Atlanta with the Daily going and then, you know, three issues devoted to the, to the Olympics. And, and then, of course, you had the, uh, the bombing at Centennial Park right in the middle of it. I forgot exactly when, in the middle of the night. But if we hadn't had the day, we had to have something in the daily the next day. But if this had happened, I've forgotten what day of the week it was. But uh, normally we would just cover it, you know, we'd have whatever number of days until the closing day, unless it happened on closing day. We'd have, we would cover it the way we'd, any other story. But this, we had to have something out the next morning. I remember I was at the magazine when McGuire and Sosa were named the Sportsman of the Year. Yeah. Sportsman of the Year decision. Again, another thing, it just used to carry a ton of weight, that award. Yeah. From your vantage point, your perch, how big of a deal was it and how much thought went into deciding who would win it? Um, it was a big deal. 
Yeah, that, I thought it was a, a big deal. Uh, how much thought went when it depended on the how difficult the decision was. I mean, I think that year, maybe it was some discussion because McGuire got the record. Should we just do McGuire? And we thought, no, it's all about the race. That was, I don't remember there being anybody else that we thought was seriously considered. You'd have to give me the, who they were and I could tell you how much thought went into it. Um, I can actually do that. I go, I, all right, 95, it was Ripken, 96, Tiger, 97. Dean 96 Smith. was easy. That was easy. That was simple. Tiger, that was easy. Uh, 97, Dean Smith. Um, yeah, I'm sure there was somebody else that we would have thought about. Yeah. 98, Maguire Sosa. 99, U.S. women's soccer team. That was easy. Um, 2000, Tiger Woods again. Oh, that was a big deal. You know why? Because uh, that was the first time the magazine ever picked somebody twice. We'd okay. never had a two-time sportsman, sportsman of the year. The other, the other thing we're missing is, uh, oh, during those years. And who was 2001? Oh, uh, Schilling and Randy Johnson. Okay. We didn't... Uh, Regularly, uh, the, the, the cyclist. Lance Johnson. Lance Armstrong, Lance 2002. He was 02? Yeah, he was 02. You know, I was gone. I'll throw some controversial takes at you. Give me your thoughts. Oh, I remember my first SI meeting, again, the State of the Writers meeting. And at the time, I think there was one African-American writer, Phil, and maybe one woman, wow. Kelly Anderson. In hindsight, should the staff have been more diverse? And were there not enough efforts to diversify the staff? Probably not. Yes, I would say yes. I could say I'm comfortable. We were we did a better job with women inside and in, in the office with editors, but we didn't have enough women writers out there. You're right. I think we could have done a better job. And when I was there, you started a magazine. They started a magazine, SI Women, Women, that lasted not very long. No. Was it just ahead of its time a little bit? What was the issue there? I don't know if it's ahead of its time. Is there any women's sports magazine out there today? I do feel like the WNBA has found its footing in a pretty major way and women's soccer has found its footing in a major way. And I do think there's much more of a landscape now. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure I agree with, well, how popular women's. Uh, yeah. I don't know if there's, well, there's not, a, there's not, the landscape isn't good for any kind of magazine right now, you know. men or women, but uh, it's, it's, we've become much more of a niche sport thing or, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm suspicious of, how popular the WNBA really is. Is it, being, how, is it really making it or is it being propped up on its own? It's definitely doing better than it used to. There's no right. doubt about that. It's definitely, you know. Okay. But, um, There's supposed to be a women's hockey league. I wish there were, you know, or women's, uh, how's this women's soccer league doing? Yeah, not great. It's difficult. And I'm not saying that's the, maybe we just didn't get it right, but other people at that time were trying women's magazine, sports magazine, you know, they didn't, they didn't make it either. You know, I think, this is, is, is this is off topic a little bit. I think what's happened in America continues is that the big sports like the NFL and the NBA have just taken over. People have to follow them 12 months a year. And there's very little air oxygen left for other sports, except for the Olympics. There's something special like that. But then now you come to the Olympics and nobody's ever heard anybody because they, they haven't thought about these sports. I mean, right now, you know, the world track and field championships are going on and America is doing great. And just any, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Because I, I go back and forth to New York, New York and for my little, I listen to radio, a little bit of talk radio. And it's like, it's all Kyrie and KD and Tom and Aaron and, you know, and Kyler Murray just signed it. And nobody ever mentions another sport. And, it's, and then in college football, it's the media days. It's the big 12 media day. It's the SEC media day. They figured out how to suck up all the auction in the off season. That is so true. You know, I just want to say, Bill, 1994, the sportsmen of the years were Bonnie Blair 
and Johan Olav Koss. There you go. Nobody would even know them in 2022. Right. Nobody would know Bonnie Blair exists except for the fringe. And then we go to other sports, not just living. And that was one of the nice things about Sports Illustrated was you didn't really want on the cover, but there would be something in that buffet of a track and field story or those kind of things. Yeah. I don't think the modern magazine, if we're in the, I don't think the, the magazine you edited, if it were existing in the modern landscape, would devote nearly the resources to the Olympic. I just don't think people care about the Olympics that much anymore. I agree. I remember, I remember going away and it was trying to decide who to put on the cover, Mike Dicka, or it was July. It was Mike Dicka or it was, I forgot which heavyweight, who was it? The heavyweight fight. I can't remember. It was a huge fight. Okay. And, uh, but it was off season story with Mike Dicka in July or something. It was like, we're going to put Mike Dicka. We did probably on the cover in July. It was him smoking a cigar. I think it was after the Ricky Williams trade when he was the uh, coach of the Saints. Wait, I've, I've wanted to ask you this for a long time. So it's um, it's 2002. I'm on my honeymoon in Australia. And Steve Canella sends me an email or whatever. And it's the announcement of you leaving. And I was uh, I was devastated. I swear to God, I, oh, I, was, I was devastated. I really was. You are. You're probably my favorite boss I ever worked for. Oh, I just, stop it. I, spell, I swear to God, you were always just a really decent guy. Like, you were always just decent. And I worked for a lot of bosses who were not decent over the years. And you were just always decent. I was really crushed. And um, I've always kind of wondered, like, was it the corporatization of the, was it the intrusion of corporate interest? Was it you were just tired? Like, why did you, you have this dream job? Why did you decide to leave? Well, I, I had a great 25 years at Sports Illustrated and the, la and the last six were terrific, even be the best of the, of the 25. So I have, I have nothing but great memories. But what happened is the guy who put maybe, as we talked about earlier, Norman Perlstein, who made me the editor, said, said you, 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 you get the job. He gave up his job and said, I'm going to have another guy take, take, it, take my place. And then this other guy came in and uh, he's John Hoon. He's a very nice guy. And he's now editor, taking over the, the role of head of all time Eat magazines. And I just signed a new contract with Norm. Right. And it was it was a terrific contract. So then John calls me up and I don't know and says, "I'd like to make some changes here, and they're pretty major. Do you want to do it? Do you want to think about it? it was before Christmas? Take some time to think about it." I was thinking, "Do I have a choice?" And I didn't agree. I just had, but he has every right to. You know, he's the new. He was looking at all the magazines. He did the same thing with some other time and people. And um, he wanted to make some changes. And, and then I said, oh, gosh, this is going to be blah, blah, blah. And then he said, then Norm says, well, if you don't want to do it, you can just walk away and keep the contract. Wow. So uh, that's what I had to really think about. Do I want to do this or do I want to? Maybe it's the right time. I also think that going back to the, remember I said the magazine, sports magazine, the, one of the, the easy parts about it is and the nice parts is it's mostly scheduled. So yeah. I think being an editor of a big weekly magazine you know, five or six years is a, is a good number of years. It's a good run. I don't know. Maybe it was time for me to, to get some fresh eyes on the magazine. I'd been there for 25 years and six as the editor. And I thought, you know, even though I, I didn't agree with all those, he had every right to make those decisions or make, you know, want to make those changes and some of them of all personnel. But anyway, I just thought he's make, they're making it very easy for me. And, and, and maybe they're right. It's probably time for me to sort of going back and, and, and putting my head down and, and making some very difficult decisions. And maybe some of them I wouldn't agreed with it said, maybe it's time to, you know, say goodbye. So they were very nice about it. They gave me the choice, but they also made it very easy. <laughs> was it emotional? I think it was emotional. Yeah. 
missing missing people like you and you know all the, the great collection of people seeing them every day sure it was a big change let's put it that way wait the uh, thing i always found interesting because I, I told a few people you were going to be doing this podcast and you kind of just vanished i mean I've, I've kept in touch with you loosely and you again you once came to my house and beat, beat my ass in ping pong you didn't stick around you didn't get involved in another magazine you didn't were you just kind of tired of it all well i think the last as i said the last year when i was was getting I didn't have the magic solution to uh, solving the, the changing media landscape or Time Incorporated or, or, sport, or even Sports Illustrated. But I saw it was coming and I just thought that, you know, maybe, that, you know, I'm old school in a lot of ways and I don't, I'm not going to be able to figure all this social media out. Uh, and it was coming very quickly at us. And, you know, also, you know, I had a kid, you know, my son was getting involved more and more in, in, in some sports and hockey in particular. And, you know, I said, this is a chance I can, you know, he's too young to drive. And so I got involved in that. So it was pretty easy to fill the days. So if that's what you're asking. I did a little consulting for a little bit, but nothing big. I wasn't going to be able to replicate what we just talked about. Those wonderful years with those wonderful people at Sports Illustrated. That wasn't going to happen again. Wait, I'll end with this. You, I asked you how old your kids were via email and you said yeah. 35, 33, 31 and your grandfather. And um, I still kind of picture you as like this, you know, young kind of darting around the office and running the magazine and it's weird to me that you have kids in your thirties. Like it's very weird to me that you're. Yeah. When I saw you in the show, I was, my kid was going up for, you know, was going to skate, uh, taking a skating lesson up. Do you find uh, this whole aging uh, thing as weird as I do? Aging. Oh yeah. It just goes so fast. You know, I still can dart around, but you know, I'm getting old and my knees are arthritic. Yeah. I don't like any of that. There's nothing good about it. I was looking for the positive. Jeez. I don't think I don't see them right now. I don't see any positives, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Are you worried about this? You're the one who has to deal with contacting athletes and getting them to sign up and say, you know, I think you said, you know, there's no guarantee. You know, you don't get to read my quotes. No, you don't get, I know you don't get to read the story. I mean, athletes now have their own pulpits now. They don't need you or sports illustrator anymore, do they? No, I always find it interesting. Like, I, I'm sure we agree. Like Gary Smith was a, was a craftsman. And part of the way he was a craftsman is, you know, whoever, Alan Iverson or Dean Smith or whoever knew that he would be coming along. And it was worth it because he was going to paint this portrait. Yeah. I mean, there's still really great sports writers out there who do mm -hmm. stuff like that, but there's no way you get the access that he got back in the nineties and eighties. It just doesn't exist. And that, I, that's a really hard obstacle for sports writing. And you're not going to get the scoop because if Kevin Durant wants to, he's just going to, he's going to announce where he, right. He's not going to tell sports illustrator, right. Where he's going to play next year. Right. No, no. And, um, and I can't blame them. That's the thing. Like why I always say like, uh, People ask me, do I get mad when people refuse to talk for books? And I always say, well, you have to look at it from their perspective. You're Bo Jackson. Someone comes along. I'm going to write a biography of your life. How much do I get paid? Well, nothing. How much editorial control do I have? Actually, none. Can I at least read it before you put it out? No. So what's the benefit for me? Like, I've always kind of understood that. You know, it's, hard, it's a hard sell for athletes. What is the benefit, especially now where I can control my own narrative? Why would I, why would I trust you to do it? You know, it's also like it's Sports Illustrated was really lucky. I mean, rightly or wrongly, you could disagree or not, but we were perceived to be the best, the best baseball cover, the best football, basketball, whatever. And so if people did want to talk, when Sports Illustrated came in and said, wanted to do a story on the Yankees, you know, Tom Ferducci didn't have to go through PR, didn't have to go through an agent. He just, you know, he went up to Aaron Judge and said, you know, and, and he talked. Now there's so many people reporting on every little thing nuance of these teams now it's hard it's very hard to come up with something that other people don't have 
The only reason I would disagree with you on that is I do think, and these are a lot of skills I learned at the magazine. I think really good reporting still shines and digging and digging and digging because there's such a sense of immediacy. The value now is immediacy and being first with something. And if you right. can take the time and dig and dig and dig, I still think you can produce really good content. The problem is a lot of publications now are just about being first, not about having the most absorbing. But when you're saying dig and dig and dig and have time, that's for a book that you could take months or a year right. to do. What if you're mag a weekly magazine or a daily newspaper? It's hard. Um, well, you still have guys like Ray Thompson and, and Beth Wick or Sam at ESPN or John Wertheim, or, you know, our friend Wertheim does some really great stuff at SI, but those are writers who are given time. Most writers are not given that much time anymore. Right. Yeah. On the other hand, one thing I, I do think it's exciting now, I think sports is, is, is exciting in a lot of ways right now, more than it used to be. It seems to be, we went for decades and nothing much changed. Now, look at, look at what's happened in just the last year. Look at just college football right now. We, we suddenly, it took decades to even get a, a, you know, the BCS playoff. And then we went to the playoffs and suddenly overnight, we got NIL, the transfer portal and super conferences. You know, so it's like every day something's happening. It's big. Yeah, we went forever and nothing like this happened. I mean, look, it's overnight. We have the live golf tour. Regardless of how you, what you feel about it, all these developments, it's, it's something to cover and it's, but it does suck all the, they just, those kinds of things are going to, as I said earlier, going to suck all the oxygen out. And so you're not going to have any coverage of, as I said, the world track and field championships. You listen to radio. It was the SEC media day all the way down. I mean, it's not even baseball anymore. It's football. Basketball. No, it's, not football. it's an NBA. Yeah. Football, basketball. That's all it is. Yeah, football, basketball. And basketball has always been sort of star oriented. So you had Bird versus Magic, where football wasn't. Now it's it's Brady, it's Rodgers. You got to have five, one of five or six quarterbacks, and you know it's all about them and their contracts. And you know Deshaun Watson saga, and that's it's, it's what we're talking about all the time. I forgot to ask you this: How big of a issue was it, if at all, that Michael Jordan would not talk to Sports Illustrated? I don't know what we would have gotten if he had have talked. That's because of the uh, Baggett Michael cover. Yeah. Baseball cover, which is, you know, what year was that? Do you remember? I think it was 93. The guy to ask, of course, is McCallum. I mean, he, he was covering the NBA, but it seemed like he worked around it very nicely. And we had some, God, we had to, the Bulls gave us great access. Remember that cover we had on them, what, rolling the dice on the plane? The team. Yeah, that was amazing. Season? That was amazing. I mean, there's a good example. When the Bulls dynasty, you know, just figuring out different ways to cover the Bulls, you know, suddenly you're down to, you know, bench warmers you're trying to, you know, but people couldn't get enough of that. I remember you went three weeks in a row with the, I think Jordan on the cover once three weeks in a row. Right. It was the story. Well, Bill, I appreciate you. This has uh, been fun. You helped my career in many ways. No, you stop it. You helped mine by writing good stories. No, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, Bill Colson, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Bill literally nowhere, which is super admirable and maybe the way it should be. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, Please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money for doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.